Hello. Uh, what's up, gang? It's me. I am back. Back from the dead. Back from Ohio. Back on the podcast. The I didn't plan to take any time off. I planned to not take any time off. And then we had a an episode with my friend Ryan McKee that was about to go up. And I recorded it uh, to a click track, or I, at least I exported it to a click track, so it was unusable. And then um, just sort of got overwhelmed with a ton of shit, and uh, we decided to take the month of January off. Uh, but we're back. The, uh, the episode with Ryan will be going up next week. I wanted to record sort of a new header for this, um, or a, uh, an intro to sort of drag you all back into this shit show we call a podcast. Um, also, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what I've been up to, the sort of my primary concerns of the last couple of months. Uh, if you're following along on social media and stuff like that, you know that I uh, toured out to Ohio uh, with my friend Rad Pinkard, uh, who had never been on the road before, and uh, and that was awesome um, because. I don't know. I'm so fucking jaded. I'm so over it and that's wrong. And I know it's wrong. And the sometimes what it takes to prove to myself that it's wrong is to bring somebody like rad out on the road. Who's excited about fucking literally everything. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it was really great to sort of re-experience the road for the first time. Um, you know, through his eyes, you know, with him seeing it, you know, he, he was like the, or, you know, Am I going to have my own dressing room at, you know, at these places? And I was like, bro, the, like we're playing the dressing room. Like most of these rooms don't have room like the, uh, the, but, um, but yeah, it was great. I was super worried about how Sadie was going to do. She was great. Then when I was in Ohio, I was sort of just like camping out in the house there for a month, uh, before I toured back with Jake. Uh, Jake is the opposite of rad. Of course, he's the, one of the things I love about Jake is that he's so unflappable. Um, we've, literally been on the road together for all of eternity and he's i've put him in every shitty situation and he's so reliable he's so unflappable unshakable the doesn't matter if it's an empty room or a hostile room or hundreds of people the um he just does his fucking job and uh and i love that um and it was awesome sort of like having those uh alternating tours of the the sort you know the seasoned pro who's who's seen everything um and then the the young buck um and but the middle part of that sandwich is i was in ohio for a month and i've sort of been hush hush about this because i uh i don't know how to feel about it or i didn't know how to feel about it and i didn't know how other people would react to it i have been hunting uh when the for the last couple of months uh my old friend lou poster who i met 20 years ago this year um and lou and i have been through a million different things he's a he's an incredible songwriter i met him as like a uh punk rock songwriter uh in the band grafton and since then he's evolved to be incredible sort of uh country americana songwriter uh leads the band Driftmouth, uh who i've toured with and will tour with again and one of my favorites uh one of my current favorites absolutely the but Lou sort of took me under his wing the last um these last i don't know 3 or 4 months and did everything that he could to teach me 40 years of hunting experience in a couple of months and 
it was such a wild trip. I it's it's kind of an ironic premise of the um, the guy who loves animals and hates guns uh, learning how to hunt. Um, but uh, Lou taught me how to hunt white-tailed deer in Ohio with a crossbow, which is incredibly fucking hard. And I was just, uh, it sort of consumed my entire life um, for the last couple of months, especially the month of December where I was out there a couple times a day uh, for three or four hours at a time, just freezing my ass off and wondering what the hell I was doing. Um, I don't want to give anything away. The, there was, man, there like sort of more epiphanies than I can run through. But this is really a really super heavy uh transformative experience for me and i may actually try and pitch a piece on it or maybe even a fucking book because it was that layered and that deep but one of the things i learned along the way is you know the spoiler alert this is the thing that happens in every one of my stories which is i learned that all of my preconceived notions are totally wrong and that uh i didn't understand the thing that i thought i understood and then, um, and then I have to sort of relearn everything. So I sat down with Lou and we had a sort of a long protracted conversation about, uh, where he comes from, his experience of hunting and his relationship with, with hunting, with deer, with the land. And then how, uh, how challenging and tricky and hopefully rewarding it was for him to uh, to teach somebody you know completely green how to uh, how to hunt. So um, we try to be hunting's not for everybody. Eating meat isn't for everybody. I get that. That we do our best to be uh, to be respectful and t- and tactful. Um, but if the if if you hate hunting and nothing is going to change your mind, then you can skip to next week's episode. The, but if you hate hunting, I would actually encourage you to listen to this one because I think that through the course of the episode, you can hear me changing my mind about it and uh, changing my relationship to hunting and my understanding of it. And I don't know. It was a really transformative experience for me, and I think at at its core, you know, this whole experience was about uh, not just hunting, but the transformative power of friendship. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful to my friend Lou for going down this fucking wild rabbit hole with me, and uh, I'm happy to be back. I'm happy you're here. I hope you enjoy this episode. First one of 2023 with my old friend, Lou Poster. Mr. Shabali is catching up with friends who are arguably more talented than him. Record and the... And if it runs out after 15 minutes, we'll just, uh, we'll just record this again for the... <laughs> For the third time. All right, hang on just a second there, bud. All right. There you are. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lag. I don't know if it's like my internet or what. Hmm. The I can definitely hear it. The 
Let's, let's see. I don't have any of my shit open. Um, the You are on your new Earthlink shit or whatever it is. Skylink? Skynet? Skynet, yeah. It's, I'm on the Starlink, yes. I'm on the, I'm on uh, the good shit. Let's try and turn off video and see if that helps. All right, what do you think about that? Uh, that seems to be better. The, tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. Uh, I didn't eat breakfast. Okay. Yeah. The yeah, I, I think I think that's better. The it might just be that we have to do it without video. Okay, that's totally fine. I wanted you to at least see your uh, your deer head and the uh, awesome uh, plague shed that you were in. So the man, I uh, I remember that uh, that skull being a lot bigger. <laughs> <laughs> It's just it loses ten pounds on camera. Yeah, yeah. The, it's the it's the slimming filter that you put on the uh, you put on that mount. Right. Um, how are you, buddy? What's new? The I uh, I have so much uh, weird shit to report from uh, being on tour, and uh, this isn't that podcast. The but. Um, <clears throat> You know this. It's it's so weird to come home and have and to have this sort of transformational experience and have everything be at once the same and also completely different. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you've you've experienced that kind of an attenuation that I'm sure just got shoved uh, into the highest possible gear when you were on tour because to go from like the I don't know the that's calm, almost onanistic like existence that is hunting in a shed by yourself or in a blind or whatever. Um, to all of a sudden being on tour like all across the country with people in your face all the time and you know being on the road and constantly engaged with other people was probably very jarring. I imagine it was probably a, a tough experience. It's like in that movie uh, Silkwood where she's uh, she gets contaminated. Uh, I think it's Meryl Streep or uh, Julia Roberts or whatever, and then they go and just like spray her with all this water from every direction. You're just when you're on tour, it's just this constant bath of information at full force all the time. Right. And uh, yeah, to go from the uh, sensory deprivation of hunting to being on the road, man, it's fucking weird. <laughs> the- yeah, it's like drinking from a firehouse, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The um, so this podcast is going to be about hunting. The let's people know you a, a, a little bit from the podcast. They know that uh, you and I go way back. Um, you're a songwriter. You're a man of the woods. The um, this time we're going to talk about about hunting and i guess let's start with your relationship with it like when when did your hunting life start and how did your hunting life start um i was probably about eight years old the first time i was allowed to go into the woods with a firearm in my hands um but my hunting life probably started before i even really had any consciousness my dad grew up hunting and fishing and all that good shit and i uh it's just part of it you know it's like air or whatever um but I remember distinctly the first time that I was allowed to hunt squirrels. Uh, I, I had an old 410 single action, uh, single shot breech shotgun. 
And in order to get the hammer back on it, I mean, I was eight and I was undersized at eight. Like I was a small eight year old. I was probably the size of a normal five or six year old and trying to work the hammer back took two hands and all the strength that I could muster to get off one shot at a squirrel. Um, but yeah, I've been doing it since I was far too young to be doing it. The, did you have any sense of internal conflict when you started hunting? I mean, you know, squirrel, squirrels are cute as hell. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd already eaten several of them by the time that I was allowed to kill one myself. So um, I don't really have that cute relationship with food. Uh, I didn't have anything <laughs> hit me until uh, until I killed my first deer. And then deer are just undeniably adorable and um, human-sized. And there's a lot that's wrapped up in, like, killing your first deer. Um, it's it, knowing that you can take a life that's that big and that significant and that, you know, meaningful and that has that much food attached to it. It's, it's that much meat. Um, there's, there are a lot of things. I think some of them are modern, my culture, you know, the culture that I've grown up in, there's some of them are modern culture and some of them are just in the DNA that when you kill a, a, an animal that size for food, there's a feeling that goes along with that, that, you know, is a bittersweet kind of a thing that, you know, I think we just have have that as part of our hardware yeah it's uh, you know there, there's so much there's this sort of weight of bad metaphors behind deer because you know when you uh when you see a deer that's been hit by a car three times on the side of the road it just looks like wet garbage you know and the but when you see deer alive in the wild all your head fills with all these things that you've um that you've heard or soaked up in movies or literature you know the um how ma- you know majestic they are majestic isn't a word that we seem to use for anything other than like fucking canyons and deer and so and it, so it's totally cliche and overused and also completely true and perfect and accurate well i think that the the wet garbage aspect of that you know the the deer laying on the side of the road that's the wet garbage is our culture like the, the wet garbage is us that's what we did to that majestic thing and yeah. when you when you when you get to that point with it and you realize that the deer is just a mirror of like are you engaging with it well or are you engaging with it poorly um and then you know that that becomes like the bigger picture like are you engaging with the world well or are you engaging with with the world in a, a detrimental way the and i mean i mean to think about animals as you know you said oh i've never found food to be cute you know the i i think one of the things you're getting at there is the um the class the classicism or the class consciousness inherent in uh a layperson's judgment of hunters and hunting i think there's a lot wrapped up in that um you know most people that do eat meat will kill an animal with a dollar without thinking about it yeah. going through a drive-thru or, you know, over a grocery store or whatever, you know, that, that dollar that you spent went to killing the animal that you just purchased, regardless of whether or not you killed it with your bare hands. There are a lot of people on this planet and in this country and in this state that cannot, they don't have those dollars, uh, that that's not an option for, or if it is an option, it's a treat. Yeah. And there is a very cost-effective way to sustain yourself. and you know, whether that's a, a, a choice or a circumstance or whatever, 
you know, some people just don't choose to engage and have money in their pocket. Some people can't get money in their pocket, but for whatever reason, you can go out and, and hunt your food and, you know, in a very, very cost-effective way, provide for yourself. I, th- I think it's a, a Bob Dylan line. The, um, the executioner's face is always well hidden, you know, and, and when we're, we're thinking about our food production or political violence, you know, it's like people are okay with the death penalty, but not okay with uh, throwing the switch themselves, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, I got distance. You know, that somebody going to disconnect. It's just, uh, it's having the buffer and that's the condom that allows you to just fuck up whatever you want, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think the, the classist thing too, is that, you know, when, when you have a dollar to spend at fucking Arby's or Burger King, uh, the, you're not just sort of paying to, uh, to kill an animal. You're paying to have somebody else kill it, uh, in a way that's concealed from you. And you get this like pink hockey puck or a gray hockey puck in, in the case of fast food that, that is, uh, completely removed. Um, it's like any trace of, uh, cruelty or killing or death or life itself is, um, you know, completely, uh, it's been completely hidden. Right. And the, the cruelty is not just towards the animals, it's towards the people that have to stand on a production line all day and slaughter these animals and deal with their entrails and deal, deal with the awful and all that stuff. Like, you know, you're, you're causing other people to suffer, like humans to suffer in, in addition to animals. And all that shit is true. And I still eat meat and I'll still go to fucking Arby's <laughs> tomorrow. Like, I, it's just part of it. But I, that said, there is a better way and I'm aware of it. <laughs> I don't get all of my meat from the deer that I harvest. I only harvest two or three deer a year, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I am well aware that the ethics of hunting are far superior to the ethics of drive through fast food. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about is, you know, the cruelty free meat. And not only is there not no such thing as cruelty free meat, there's, there's no, no such thing as cruelty free vegetables, unless you like grew them yourself and, you know, from uh, absolutely from the ground up and the, there's no cruelty free iPhone or computer or uh, you know, your car, anything like that. Right. Um, You're right. I mean, somebody has to bring that to you. Uh, you know, anything that you don't do yourself pretty much is, is causing somebody else to do it for you. Um, so, you know, we're and, and everything is like that. It's, it's every little tendril of, of your daily existence as some foot in that cruelty or that, you know, that cycle. You know, a big part of this process of um, learning how to hunt, and of course, like even before I learned how to hunt of just doing the mental gymnastics of overthinking every single aspect of it, um, was uh, trying to reckon with my own cruelty. Like, do I have the, do I have the capacity to do this? Do I have the, the emotional fortitude to, to take the life of another being roughly the same size and shape that I am. Yeah. And you don't know if you can until you're on the other side of it. Um, and that's like when we started doing this, like when we, before we even got into the woods for the first time, I remember I looked at you and I was like, you're going to cry. And like, we need to be ready for that. You know what I mean? Like we might be in the, in the blind together, 
when this happens and you're going to cry and I need you to be okay with that. You know what I mean? Because you don't know it until you've done it. Um, you, you don't know if you have the capacity to do it until it's too late. And I think that everybody that can, that, that does hunt and that takes that first experience in processes it and then decides to hunt again. Um, there's, there's a, uh, I don't know, a decision, I guess, that, that gets made that that's in, that you can deal with that amount of grief, um, in order to do the thing, this thing that you love to do and that you can take that pixel sized bite of grief out of the bigger picture of grief that is millions of cows being led to slaughter, blah, blah, blah. That whole thing we talked about early, earlier. Um, you know, you can, you can take that cause that's, that's what one person can hold. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so how old were you the first time you shot a deer and tell me that story? Uh, I was 12 or 13 years old. I had a 243. Uh, we were on a shutdown coal mines, topside property. My dad used to work for the mines for Consol in North central West Virginia. And, uh, was, even though he was working at a different mine at the time and he had worked at, at this particular mine previously and was on good terms with everybody there, uh, security guards included. And so we would go and, and hunt those, those properties. And I shot a doe, um, with my 243. I was very excited. I pulled my shot just slightly. Uh, she was slightly gut shot, but you know, you can hunt with a high powered rifle there. Uh, you know, a bottleneck cartridge. So that bullet did its job. The deer did not suffer. Uh, we went and got it and dragged it, got it and all that. Um, and it was highly emotional. It was the first time that I had killed a deer. You know, you, you kind of watch the light go out of their eyes. They kind of glaze over. Um, and you know, it's, it's a lot to take in as a, as a, as a kid. Um, even though I had a lot of experience shooting, you know, squirrels and pheasant and grouse and all the stuff that used to run around these hills and holler. Um, it was the first time that I had, had taken a deer and, you know, it was gut shot, which meant that it was messy. It wasn't terribly gut shot, but it, there was like some, uh, some bad stuff in the, in the body cavity when we went to field dress it. And it was almost like that was almost some kind of karmic punishment for making a poor shot and, oh. you know, a less ethical shot. Um, you know, you have to deal with this shit literally. Like, yeah, yeah. like, here you go. You fucked up. Here's, here's your, here's how you have to deal with it. Um, and I learned that lesson real well. And I take in very, uh, thoroughly whether or not I can make an ethical kill shot when I'm in a situation to make a shot. I, I haven't wounded a deer in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. The, it's funny because thinking about hunting and thinking about people's relationship with animals, inevitably you sort of like run up against the burden of uh, white folks, native American lore and their fetishization of uh, native Americans and indigenous cultures. And, you know, we see the, the relationship that indigenous people have with, uh, with deer or moose or walrus, you know, the different, whatever, whatever animal, you know, sustains that tribe. But the, you know, I think one of the things that you're getting at is the, 
who are working folks in West Virginia have an intimate relationship with deer in order to survive. Yeah, um, absolutely. And a lot of what, you know, the white person's notion of the relationship that the native tribes of this country have with the deer is romanticized. You know, there, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, Oh, well, you know, you're going to sit in a blind and, and shoot a deer. That's, you know, you know where it goes and you see its path and there's food here or whatever. And that I, I know that they come from a place where they think that possibly the native tribes just wandered out into the woods and shot whatever random things that they could see and didn't have any technique or skill or, uh, you know, effort into, into the hunting process. And it's, it's, it's telling, I think, to see that kind of attitude, you know, they, they look at the way that the, in their minds, the way that the native Americans would have hunted deer as some lofty thing. And the way that the, you know, poor people in Appalachia and pretty much all over this country, it doesn't have to be in this region, but you know, the, the people who are, are, are dealing with poverty and who are getting their food this way, they, they look down on that. And so they, they look up to, you know, this romanticized notion that does not exist and look down on this other notion that absolutely does exist and that is necessary and in our time. And I just, I don't get it. I don't understand it. That's another one of the disconnects, great disconnects that I just cannot wrap my head around. I think there is this fantasy of, um, you know, sort of a, a pure form of hunting that, um, that we get from like Hollywood or whatever the, you know, but the truth is that, uh, you know, uh, the Inuit have been hunting with skidoos for generations and native Americans have been hunting with high powered rifles and shotguns and fucking 12 packs of beer for generations, you know, and that, um, this is, this is how people live now, you know? Yeah. Well, and there's, there's obviously there's still a right way and a wrong way to do this. Like, you know, in, in the interim between your first trip out here and your second, we had a, a truck drive down my road and shoot a deer out the window and go collect it with a high powered rifle off the road, you know, completely illegal poaching. And the neighborhood kind of came together and figured out who this person was and got the, you know, proper authorities involved. That's wrong. You know what I mean? That's that's absolutely fucking wrong. That's not ethical. That's not helping somebody. That's not anything other than some dude trophy hunting from his pickup truck driving down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're just looking for me, there are does everywhere. You yeah. know, you can get permission on somebody's property or go find some public land and take a deer. It's not that hard. But, you know... I guess when we're talking about the ethics of this, and I know that that's a big concern, especially like on your end of it, coming in cold and not having hunted before, um, the ethical take on this is that there's no purity in it. There's not. There's no purity in the world. So you just take the best case scenario that you can build for yourself and try to live that. You know, you... I love hunting. I just love to sit in a deer blind. Even if I don't take an animal, I'll sit up there for a month and watch the deer run around and watch the squirrels and watch the birds. You know, like being a part of the thing is to me the whole point of it. Like being an apex predator in my own environment 
and being able to reach out and just touch the thing that sustains me and that gave me life in the first place. Like that is the point. All the other stuff, I try to harvest my animals in an ethical way. I, I like to make a clean shot. I like to, you know, stay on my own property and not trespass. I like to hunt deer in season so that the, you know, DNR knows when the deer are harvested. I always tag my deer and report them. You know what I mean? Like there are ways to do this and that doesn't just make me feel good. I just, that's the way that I want to be. But I don't know. Ethically, I think that, that hunting is, is the, is the superior way to go. One of the things that, you know, having puzzled over this over and over again in my head too, is that, um, uh, to say ethical, we're describing a ratio that there is no ethical binary of that it's ethical or unethical, you know, the, and this is not the first time it's come up on the podcast, but the only ethical decision is suicide. You know, if you want to go through this world without killing animals or bugs or hurting other people, the, you know, fucking dip out now, the, and by, um, we're dragged into this world against our will. And then in order to stay here, to continue to be here, we have to accept that this concept of ahimsa of do no harm is bullshit. There's no such thing as do no harm. It's do the least amount of harm that you can feasibly do, understanding that in order to continue to exist in this world, you will be doing harm not just to one person, but to many people and to many environments. And it's to do the least amount of harm that you can manage as long as it's uh convenient and doesn't fucking drive you insane you know and at at every point in our lives we're making decisions that prioritize the the health and the lives of um our friends our family ourselves over and above the lives of others and that's fucking life man it is it is and i think that maybe the decision is trying to do the harm that can be healed right Right. Um, Sustainability. I, I, I harvest a couple of deer and every year a few more deer are born. That's, that's a harm that can be healed. If I kill all of the deer, that's not a harm that can be healed. If I hurt all the deer into a pen and slaughter them and say that they're all mine, that's a harm that cannot be healed. And I think that that's, that's the balance. You know what I mean? Like you have to be able to do something. Yes, it's going to cause a harm to that individual animal, but it's going to promote the overall health of the herd. And it's, it's that, that harm that I did by killing that one animal will be healed by the herd within a year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the, I, and I want to push deeper into this because one of the things that, um, you know, we're sort of contrasting the the experience of somebody driving down a road with a high powered rifle and taking a pot shot at a you know at a deer out of their fucking window and then just grabbing the deer and going versus the um, our experience of hunting and what hunting means and how much um, work goes into it. And the one of the things that immediately pops for me is that. Um, to, to drive down a rural road in your pickup with your, you know, with your rifle in hand, the, that you're, um, you're invading, you're just imposing, um, your, your will and your technology on the environment with no understanding of it. And my 
talking to my mom about this, the mom, I'm glad you're not listening to this podcast that my mom was like, Oh, the, you know, um, Lou baits, you know, for deer, just like uncle Don does, you know, that he feeds them and, and then just picks which one he wants. And then, and that's that, you know, and, and she sort of said it like it was cheating and the, and that's absolutely how I understood it initially, but now having, walked up and down that fucking hill with you a million times dragging you know bags of corn and minerals um the man we fed way more deer than we killed <laughs> lots more deer and you know it's not a guarantee like it's not like you put out corn and then the you know your your target deer shows up you know what i mean like that's not how it works and again to go to that notion of like the the noble savage uh, you know trope or whatever Right. Native Americans baited deer too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, don't, you don't throw a hook in the water without a worm on. You know, like that's just not how you get animals to eat. You have to have, you have to up your odds. You have to make yourself uh, a viable, <laughs> viable predator. So, you know, you don't just wander into the woods and hope that something walks past you. It's not how it works. So, and it's never how it's, it's never worked like that. At any point in human history, it's never worked like that. So, Let's just get that one out of the way. Yeah. So yes, you know we do use I, I and I feed the deer year round because I want them patterned into my hill because I want them healthy because in the spring I feed extra minerals so that the does can you know be healthy to to raise their fawns uh, all summer long. I keep minerals and 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 feed out and you know between myself and a few neighbors around here over the six or seven hundred acres that we have collectively among us. We maintain a very healthy herd of deer. They're not penned in. They're not tame animals. They're wild animals, but we, it's, it's our, I think, responsibility because of the great gift that we get every year of venison from them to maintain that herd. Not in a, not in a husbandry kind of a way. It's not like keeping cattle, but we still need to make sure that our herd is sustainable and sustained. The, a little side note one of the one of the reasons that i quit drinking that was a concept that came up again and again in my head is just that this is not sustainable this isn't something that i can maintain you know that i uh this will have to stop the um one of the one of the things that was really interesting for me sort of coming into the whole hunting experience with you was seeing uh all the different ways in which my preconceived notions of um hunters and hunting were wrong and one of the things that was fascinating to me was that especially because people love shitting on ohio and if if you're one of them and you're listening man fuck you ohio's the best the but <laughs> to see um what dear nerds you and your neighbors are that you would have the trail cam set up and that you would be tracking these different bucks that, you know, this one is desirable for this reason because it's typical. And this one's desirable because it's atypical and this one's undesirable. And it's like thinking about you guys texting each other, like giggling with excitement, like fucking teenage girls talking about, Ooh, cute guy alert. You know, the, the way <laughs> when you see <laughs> a nice rack, you know, seeing a fucking big buck on the camera. It's like the, I don't know, man. It was, Oh God. I was like, it's really endearing. Fuck that pun. No, it was the, it's, oh, that's a fair one. it's so cool. I, one of the things I wanted this podcast to be about was about enthusiasm. 
about people getting excited about shit and to see how excited you and your neighbor, Sam got about, um, not just, not just hunting deer, but seeing deer, seeing, you know, deer sign that when somebody shot a deer, like the excitement with which you treat, you know, tracking them and getting out there and for hours and hours. It's exhilarating. I mean, there's, again, part of the hardware is finding a spot of blood on the ground. Like that just hits something so deep inside of you when you're tracking a deer. Like I can't, I, I lost complete track of time. We were out there that one day for what, four hours? Five oh, hours? Yeah, forever. You know, and then the next day for eight or nine. I mean, there is, and I just completely lose track of that time. I, I don't find it tedious at all. I'm in the woods, which is my favorite place to be. And I'm doing something that, you know, millions of years of evolution has led me to be able to do. And that there's just no f- part of my forebrain that's really active at that time. I'm, I'm looking at blood and I'm trying to, determine the trajectory of the animal, the speed of the animal and figure out where it might be from here. And that's such a, that's such a great feeling. But to go back to the trail cams, like, you know, we run those all year and we start, we see those bucks start to develop, you know, in June, you know, coming into velvet. And we start to say, Oh, this is that deer from last year. He's doing this now. And this is that deer. Oh, he's a year older and he's got this, you know, configuration or he's gotten more mass or oh he's actually come kind of maybe starting to backslide a little bit maybe he's past his five and a half six and a half year prime you know maybe that deer needs to be harvested and we start at that point identifying bucks and kind of making a, a, a list about you know what ones need to come out and again that's herd maintenance you want to make sure that the older bucks are getting it weeded out out of the way so that the younger bucks with the new genes can come in, right? Because an older old buck will run off all of the young ones if he's allowed to just maintain that area. So that's just another part of what, you know, that's all about. But we do, we, we get so excited. Like we'll see a 10 point. Oh my God. You know, I'll call Sam immediately. Hey Sam, I got this new 10 point on my camera. Driggs will come over here. Dave Driggs, I shit you not. Ran over here the other day because he found the sheds off of his target buck that he did not get uh, a shot at this year. He found that deer sh- it shed early and he found them and he came straight to me. He did not call. He did not text to say, Hey, is this a good time? He drove straight up my driveway with two antlers <laughs> in his hands and he's like, I found Buster sheds. That's how excited we get. Give me the names of six deer that you've seen on camera this year. Well, names, I don't know. We've got Calabas was the, the deer that I uh, that really hooked me on this property. That was a couple of years ago. Um, it was a kind of a ruddy, brownish uh, rack, and he was non-typical. He would have been a, a mainframe eight, and then he had like 11 on one side and four on the other. Um, there was Mr. Handsome. There was Too Wide. There was Dwight. There was Sawtooth. There's Buster, obviously. Um, you know, the deer there was lloyd christmas uh which was your deer and then once you bounced an arrow off of him i started calling him old ironsides um but you know there are the deer get get named but not in a pet kind of a way just in an id kind of a way like hey that deer you know i i can i can spot that deer and i can pick that deer out now and you know when we were tracking ironsides you had that encounter with you know sawtooth yeah 
the one of the things that has been so fascinating for me about this journey was seeing how much the this isn't uh, the great white hunter uh, imposing his will and technology upon the land as much as it was uh, integration that, um, you know, and to hunt in a blind when you're baiting deer, um, the you're you're not tricking the deer or trapping the deer. Uh, you're the trick that you're pulling is that you're disappearing is that you, you have to become part of the environment and the, and, and not just um, the, the deer's environment, but the environment of all the animals in that ecosystem. Exactly. And it's that attenuation that I think is so important. And I think it's something we talked about a lot when we were in the blind. Uh, well, we whispered about it sometimes <laughs> when we were in the blind, um, but you know, that, that calming and stilling and quieting, yourself there's got to be you know I, i'm assuming that yoga and meditation and things like that deal with that kind of uh concept but to do it in the woods that stillness and that calm and that sense of quiet purpose is unfound anywhere else in the world for me i just don't have it any place else and to to be able to i don't know assimilate myself into the environment and to be part of it. Again, I will sit up there with a crossbow in hand in the middle of 10 deer and just watch them for hours and hours at a time with no intention of, of harvesting one. I, you know, get to the point where I'm in that herd. Um, I, I watch them play. I watch them eat. We watch them bed down. Um, you, you pick up on all their behaviors, the way that they communicate with each other. You pick up the way that the squirrels communicate with each other. You got to see that a couple of times, like when a hawk would show up and that yeah. alarm call would go off and you could hear it cascade from ridgetop to ridgetop. That kind of stuff is always there. Whether you're there to see it or not, that stuff is happening every day. And that's not, that's our world. That is, that's the world that we came from. We live in this moat of a existence between that world and whatever else is out there. But that natural world is constant. It's gravity. You can't, it doesn't go away. You know, I, I feel like the world that we've made as, as a, a society, as a culture is tenuous. Um, it can crumble, but when it crumbles, it becomes that. Yeah. You see what I mean? The, yeah. the thing, the thing that I love the most can never go away. It is the world. And I think it's really important to have that as the basis and bedrock foundation of, of, you know, my life, my existence, um, because it puts everything else into a, into a perspective that I think has been very valuable, valuable. One, like a staple shot of any good sort of uh, futuristic sci-fi fantasy apocalyptic movie is, you know, seeing that, you know, at the end of Planet of the Apes, you know, the um, the Statue of Liberty, you know, poking out of the beach or seeing, right. the, you know, the Sears Tower or something, some, you know, famous landmark, you know, submerged or covered with moss and vines. And right. the it's it's always presented to us as... Uh, something catastrophic, and I've always found it kind of comforting. Oh my god, it's so terrible! Yeah, it's awesome. It's so great to me. Is that like, yeah, nature's gonna win. 
Yeah, the house, the house is undefeated. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the, we've talked about a ton of this shit, um, you know, a million times in the blind or driving to and from or the are sort of like powwow sessions when I'm expressing frustration to you outside of your house. Like, oh, I can't fucking do it. But I don't know that I've ever asked you this question. Why did you want to teach me how to do this? What made you want to bring me into this experience? It's a lot of fucking work on your end. It is. Um, it's something that I thought that you were uniquely suited to uh, to grow into. And um, and here's why. Um, when we first met uh, back in the blackout days. 20 years uh, not, ago this year. That's correct. Yeah, 2003, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, when we met at that blackout, well, you know, around that time, whatever, we hung out in Athens at the blackout fest. And after the after party that night, we all woke up the next morning. We went to shoot guns. And I know that you remember this because it was one of the freakiest fucking things that's ever happened in like yep. my whole life. Um, we went out to shoot guns with a bunch of dudes. Now, I, I grew up, again, with firearms, very comfortable around firearms. But there are fucking rules. And when those rules don't get followed, I get a little uh, nervous. And there were no rules at this place. Like, we were, <laughs> there were 10 people on this deck of this cabin shooting at water, which you're not allowed to do. There were people downrange messing with targets while other people were on the firing line shooting at a different target. Not allowed to do that. Multiple weapons from the same person. Again, like super red flag shit. And there were also some weapons there that I wasn't comfortable saving. So all that said, I was a little freaked out. And you were with me and my now ex-wife. And, you know, we all shot a little bit. And then I was like, you know what? I think I've had enough. Like, I don't want to see anybody get hurt. So I'm going to leave. And you're like, yeah, let's go. And I didn't know about the school shooting. I didn't know about your history with, with firearms at that yeah. point. And after having had that experience with you and then finding that out about you, um, that, that taught, that told me a lot about, um, your, 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 I guess curiosity might be the right word, but like your need to know things, you wanted to get familiar with that thing. And even though that was not a good uh, scenario in which to get familiar with firearms, you did it and you were comfortable, you know, comfortable enough with it to do it and made yourself do it and, and got what you needed to get out of it. And knowing that, um, and again, not knowing how you would react once you had actually killed a deer, but knowing that about you and knowing the way that your mind works and just seeing the way that you like to deal with the world, I, I thought that you would really appreciate the attenuation that uh, that the woods gives you. And I know that the things that you've been through in the last couple of years, personally, that this would be uh, a restorative and um, possibly healing or at least kickstart, jumpstarting uh, a new uh, wavelength in your thought patterns kind of an experience. And that was kind of something that I was hoping for because we have talked at length about, you know, the darkness that has been in your life for the past several years. And I, I thought it was uh, important for you to get uh, a glimpse of what I think is uh, something that just can never go away. And that's like a bedrock foundational thing for me. 
if you look at it on paper that, um, oh, you know, I have a friend who's who has a history of sort of like uh, gun trauma and violence and who's going through an incredibly dark period in his life. What he needs is to kill something that <laughs> that sounds like a fucking terrible idea. The but the. But, you know, as as you said, you know, talking about deer stories and stuff, the most boring part of the story is I shot the deer. I I got the deer, you know, that it's you're off the end. I shot it. It's the most yeah. boring part of the story. Yeah. And it's every other part of the story that's uh, that makes up the narrative, you know, and there's um, so much. I mean, the either side of that shot, the, the, the backstory behind it, how you got there, why you were sitting there at that moment. Everything about it is part of the story and would affect whether or not that shot happened. And then, especially with a bow, not so much with a rifle, but especially when you're bow hunting, there's a whole other story that is involved in after the shot. And sometimes that's gone for days. So let's dive into this. Let's talk about uh, the my three arrows, I guess. Let's tell the story then. Yeah. So the... And we tried to trace this. The, was it October when I first got out there? The first time I got an arrow on a deer. So season started the twenty fourth. Uh, we had some people out here that first week, and I think you came out the second week of season. So it would have been early October. Yeah. And yeah. the and there was a deer that you had found in the on your trail cams that you had picked out for me. Well, you, we had started talking about getting you out here a year before. Um, yeah. Yeah. And cause you'd had some venison here at the house and, um, you were like, you know what? I think I can do it. Okay, cool. So I started, uh, trying to pre-select the deer for you. I had a deer that has been part of our herd for a few years and I, I, you know, he's, he's developed to the point where he's not going to develop any further and he's a kind of an aggressive deer and he's taken up a lot of real estate and he would be a perfect deer for your first uh, harvest, you know, so I, I had a target deer picked out for you and we went up on the hill and I, we probably had two sits, I think maybe before, before he came in. Yeah. Uh, the, what's so fascinating to to go back and put myself back in that scene of like sort of sitting in the blind for the first couple of times is the, you know, the, is how much I didn't fucking know. And how much I I didn't get it, even up to and after I pulled the trigger. That like how much I was missing, how much the story was um, was hidden from view, or or was right in front of me that I wasn't fucking seeing. The of how much of the um, of that experience is uh, sitting and waiting. You know, that smelling a deer, hearing hearing something you think might be a deer that turns out to be a squirrel or a chipmunk or the uh, a stump. The you know, there's <laughs> sometimes the stumps get up and walk away. Yeah, and I, I I tell you what, Lou, that you know, for the amount of times that I sat up on the hill, the I don't think I will ever have a hunting experience that will match the first time that we went up there in the morning sitting there in this sort of like oily blackness where you, you really just can't see anything. And then having that experience of slowly 
the you know it's sort of like what we conceptualize when we conceptualize the um the dawn of existence of like you know sort of life happening in these puddles of muck you know is that it's just this unguent blackness and then there's a tree there's another tree there's branch uh, branches there's limbs that that okay that's where the ground is okay now i can see the lightness of the feed now i see something moving you know and and watching it all uh i'm literally take shape in front of you yeah and and it being in that state of like so excited that you're on the edge of your seat and listening to every little twig snap and leaf rustle and not being able to see anything and then the aperture starts to adjust and the light starts to come in and things start to reveal themselves and it's 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 being like so excited and so like right there and present and then at the same time absolutely silent and absolutely still it's such a great state to be in it's such an amazing place to be um and and you know it's i don't know if it's addictive but it is definitely you know my preferred place for me it was i mean it was just watching this hidden world come to life in front of me because i've been like banging around in the woods my whole life you know i was born in canada we had you know a fucking black bear in our backyard one year the but the the verb i use is banging around the woods you know the like right. yelling yelling and screaming and running through the woods and you know the um, playing war and shit like that. Nothing like I, you know, this scene that keeps replay, you know, replaying in my mind is the you and I, you know, white walking up that hill behind your house and me, you know, sort of talking loudly and gesticulating wildly about, oh, what are we, what are we doing today, boss? What are we doing today? You know the, um, and then looking back and just seeing you like just you know, like your hands up at your eyes, like pushing down, like okay, quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first couple of shut up. <laughs> Tramping in the conk, 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 conk. I was like, let's <laughs> the volume down a little bit. They're up there, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think I shared with you the, the idea that one of the, the best ways to, to sneak up on deer is to pretend that they too are armed uh, and, <laughs> and hunting you. Yeah. Um, just, you know, just it, to give it a little edge of terror. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, and watching you change that, you know what I mean? Over the course of not just that one hunt, but the second hunt and the, the, the amount of times that you made that walk, um, you know, you got better and better every time. And it's, you know, there's like a montage thing that's supposed to happen here from the time that you clunked into the woods the first time until the last time we, you stalked in silently, you know what I mean? And, and just learning that. And, and again, the stalking in silently is, um, is is the respectful communal part of this way of doing it uh whereas just i don't know running into the woods talking and doing whatever is driving down the road with a rifle in your hand yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like so well, and, and then there is, there even is though we've attenuated we're here and now now that you know where we're at we're on the trail but when you attenuate down even further, now you're really part of it. You're you're quiet like a deer. You're you're thinking like a deer. You're acting like a predator in a natural environment, and that's what you have become. Then there is this other thing of the crossbow, um, which is like a Rube Goldberg uh, just destruction device. That it's so uh, it's 
Uh, it's big and it's heavy like a rifle, but it's uh, it, it's sort of unwieldy and temperamental and dangerous and also completely an- antiquated. The, like you can't, the you know, a bolt action rifle, you could still get a couple of shots off. And the with well, crossbow, you know, it's like fucking you get one shot a minute and a half to reload, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're going to get one shot with a crossbow. Um, yeah. And you know, there's for you to jump into hunting during archery season, archery season is longer. And so you get a more fulfilling experience when you hunt with, with a bow. Um, and that's why I've been drawn to it. Um, but it is not the one-on-one version of hunting. Um, you know, going into the woods with a high powered rifle and shooting a deer and making a poor shot that still is a, an ethical kill is a, a much easier thing. You can reach out a lot further. The deer doesn't have to come nearly as close to you. You don't have to be nearly as quiet. Uh, you don't have to, you know, use as much scent cover. You don't have to do as much, uh, wind direction, uh, research and analysis. There are, it, it's a lot easier to just go out and walk in the woods with a rifle shoot deer. Yeah. Um, not that it's easy in any, in any way, but it is much easier than trying to shoot a projectile that's maximum range is 40 yards effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that's a long, that's a long way. You know, I don't, I don't like to shoot a crossbow any more than 20 to 25 yards. Um, so you have to be up close with the deer. So you have to be better at being part of the environment and being hidden and being a predator. And so for you, when you jumped in, you're like, well, I want to, I want to bow hunt. I was like, well, that's a little advanced. Um, <laughs> you know, we, maybe we should start with squirrels or whatever, but you know, okay, cool. We'll just jump right into the highest level of whitetail hunting. Um, and you know, I think that, so to, to try to tell the story a little bit about that first year, yeah. um, you know, we had, like, I, I just want to point out that like, you knew that it wasn't supposed to be that easy, but we had, I, you know, already done a lot of research and, and had that deer patterned in for you. And when you came in, it's one of the things that I do when I guide for other people is, you know, I try to make sure that they're on the, the target deer that they, that they want to take. And I've, I'm pretty decent at being able to, uh, find the deer's patterns and hunt that deer specifically. So when you came in, you know, after a couple of sits, uh, we had that spike uh, walk in. And when he did, I was like, he's going to go and hit these scrapes and then he's going to come around on that feed. And then he did. And he kind of moved around from right to left in front of us. And we watched him and then he moved off. And then your target buck walked in. And as soon as he did, you could feel the atmosphere change, right? Like we went from observing like a deer that we were not going to shoot, but that we just wanted to observe his behaviors and his patterns and watched to see that he was going to do what we expected. And then he did. And then boom, it's game on like that. That big deer came in and the adrenaline just spikes and you know, you're holding the bow up and he's facing you. So you don't have a shot. I remember and like, your, your demeanor changing entirely. And I think you were looking through the binoculars and I, you were like, here he comes. And I was like, bullshit, I don't see anything. And then, and then sure enough there, he came sort of like trickling out of the woods, you know, up to the the feed pile. But yeah, the, and then he was, if memory serves, he was quartered towards me for a long time. For a long time. And, you know, 
it does, everything does change because now you don't want to blow it. You don't, don't want to accidentally, you know, whisper too loud or move in the chair and, or fart. You know what I mean? Like you just want to like yeah. hold it better for the next five minutes. Cause all of this preparation and all this work, all this time that we spent is coming down to this moment right here. Here's, here's the minute. And that deer came in and you had the crossbow up on him and he's just facing towards you, facing towards you and won't turn and give you a shot. And then he finally did turn and you took your shot and he went about 10 yards and stood for a second and then went another 10 yards in a different direction and bedded down. And I was sure you had made a good hit on that deer. And so we just backed out, you know, we waited about 20, 30 minutes. The sun went down. Let me, let me stop you here too, because the, you and I have been through a ton of shit together with uh, touring and being on the road and just this, you know, sort of ups and downs and stuff. And the um, two things that I remember from taking that first shot was the, I mean, I remember we had like whatever, three minutes left of shooting light. The, and. Oh, it was was very good down to the wire, yes. And I remember the smell of the string, which is, I'd fired the crossbow, you know, 15 times before that and never smelled the string but i that day i I could smell the friction of the string and i remember looking over at you and you did this like silent scream thing and i could see you like shaking and watch like a shiver of adrenaline go through your entire body and i've never seen that happen ever before in any of the shit we've been in (laughs) it's so exciting and i was so happy for you you know what i mean like to have that like all go down exactly to plan and to happen like that for you, I thought was, I thought at that moment that that was the best possible outcome for you because it was your first hunt, and it it was at that moment very easy. You know, it was it was it was kind of hassle free. We went up a couple of times. We talked in a cursory manner about what I think hunting is, and you know what being part of this whole thing is, and then after a couple of days, I think that was our third sit. We we'd done like an evening. A morning and then that was the third sit was that evening yeah then that deer walked in and i was like this is perfect this is a this is a very uh you know sample size fun meal pack way of getting mishka into hunting and he will be into doing it again next year and it's gonna be great and and looking back and then, now i i realized so many ways in which i like i didn't fucking get it you know and i i like to like looking at you and seeing how excited you were and just not understanding it not it, it was it was too fucking easy it was too easy in that moment and the right and we thought it was done yeah yeah i thought i thought it was done you thought it was done we walked back down to the house yeah um we waited a couple of hours and then we snuck back up there and we heard a deer crash out of there and i assumed that it was your deer and that he, he just hadn't expired yet so we turned around, walked back down to the house, and you ended up uh, sleeping in the uh, plague shed. And 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 I was I I remember too being like, man, God fucking damn it, Lou doesn't know anything about hunting. We got to go in there and get this deer, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like the two things, you know, of like, you know, part of my brain being like, Lou's done this for like forty years, literally, and the and the other part being like, man, I really I know what's up. He doesn't know what's up, you know, like just that <laughs> that excitement that you have. Of, yeah. um to encounter something new in your 40s is fucking bizarre 
You know, it's the sort of getting to the the point of like, yeah, seen everything, you know, the and I hadn't seen that and I, I, I couldn't fucking wait to do it. And and we just had to like wait and wait. And then we went up the and then we went up the next morning and it still wasn't there. I will say it is. It's easier to back out uh, on a on a deer that isn't yours. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's easier to make that call when it's not your deer. Um, but it was the right call, and and that was borne out by the next day's adventure. Because when we went back up the next day, we found where that deer had bedded down, and we followed the trail, and it was a very weak uh, trail, and eventually it completely dried up. Uh, we could see where. Uh, it had clotted up and, and we tracked that deer for, I think, I think we tracked it for five hours or six hours that, that, that day. And then for seven or eight hours the next day, or maybe it was seven or eight hours the first day and five or six hours the, the day after. But we were all over through thickets. We were in, you know, neighbors' properties. There were a lot of phone calls. It was a huge adventure. Uh, Sam, uh, my neighbor and I walked all the way around another piece of property to try to push that deer. Uh, back down towards you, thinking that it was in a thicket. It turned out to be a completely different deer uh, yeah. that I harvested later. But, um, you know, it was a huge ordeal trying to track that deer. And then two days later, who shows back up on my trail cam but your deer? And I, so, I, I, I felt fucking awful that I had that I'd blown it, that I'd killed this animal, that we weren't going to get to harvest it, and that I'd like. And, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest about it too. The, um, we've uh been friends for a long time been through a ton of shit that um etc but also the this to have this skill set of hunting passed down to you this late in life it still makes a little boy out of you and i was very aware um at every turn that like um i didn't want to disappoint you i didn't want to disappoint point sam i didn't want to i didn't want to get it wrong i didn't want to fuck it up i didn't want to the and there is uh you know for women i think there's so much sort of like positive femininity that's handed down of the oh this is the pie that your grandmother made or the um this is how we've always done these you know preserves or the i know i'm choosing traditionally capital f feminine things but fucking sometimes that's how the world works but there are you know there are these these skills that are sort of like handed down hand to hand and like from my dad i got like ccr and how to hate women and that's it and the you know he never wanted to to spend time with me when i was a kid and then when we quickly moved away from canada and sort of like we're we were divorced from the hunting side of our family and then i discovered punk rock and boone's farm and you know the and my life went a different way but the so while you know while we were tracking that deer that i'd shot the there was definitely part of me that was like fucking crumbling inside that like i i fucking blew it you know the and then he popped back up on camera like a couple days later the when i'd gotten back to arizona yeah yeah it was it was you you had already left and yeah he he popped back up on camera that feeling you know i've I've had that feeling the, the 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 deer that i have that's mounted on my wall in my house that i harvested last year um, I, I shot that deer and we tracked it for 700 yards. It rained on us and washed the blood trail away. I thought I'd lost that deer. And the feeling of losing an animal that you've shot is 
one of the worst, it's, it's one of the worst feelings that there is in hunting. And it goes from that elation of like, yes, I did it to no, I didn't. And I did, I did bad. You know what I mean? So you go from like the, the highest po- possible high in hunting to the absolute lowest. And it was my fear that that was going to put you then off of hunting um, because of that experience. And then, you know, he popped back up on camera. We're all good. He doesn't even have a limp. My guess is that that was just a grazing shot. The uh, fletching came off the arrow, and that might have been from that shoot-through window. Still not really sure what happened with all that. But the point being, he showed back up on, on camera, and he's fine. And I think that that took some weight off of you to see those pictures and to know that that was that you were still there. That also started like the longest part of this journey, which was then when I, you know, when I got back out there first week of December, like I, I felt like I had a score to settle with this deer and that, um, uh, and then it was just sit after sit after sit after sit, um, in, uh, in the cold, in the dark, the, you know, getting bored you'd already harvested your buck for the season so you know after a couple of sits then it was just me up there um watching the same doe and two fawns come into that flat there again and again and again at the same time and never seeing a shootable buck right and your deer was smart enough to go nocturnal after getting shot so (laughs) he wasn't going back up um so then we were able to move you to a different uh location um up here on the top of the hill and that that spot is a very that's a very productive spot and i think at that point you had decided that your first deer didn't have to be a buck that you could you know and live with what, what uh, made what maybe made that that determination was the like it's just like two things one was the when we had pulled the cameras from the trail cameras from rocking chair and there was this like monster eight or 10 point buck and you were like pointing at the computer and howling and slapping your desk the and you were like that's a lifetime buck right there and at that point that was the moment where i said it's okay for me to take a doe because i don't want it i i want to do this i want this to be a thing that i do i don't want to shoot my lifetime buck now i want to this has been so maddening and so exhausting and so frustrating and the people around us were like man fucking what's up with your friend that you know like that i was just getting crazy about it and the and i wanted to i wanted to complete this level but i didn't want to like beat the entire game and right um and also the and i think this is the this was the healing part of learning how to hunt. And it's funny because I've been the way that the way that you poach a deer is, you know, when you take a, like a large flashlight with maybe, you know, a three or four inch diameter, uh, like bulb, the, and you tape over it and then put a tiny hole in it. So just a tiny little part of the beam comes out and then you can see the deer without your flashlight drawing attention to you. And this is Jack lighting, correct? Yes. The, and that what's weird is that that describes perfectly what I had to do in my head 
with my mind in order to be able to get to a point where I was able to take a shot at a doe because you kept describing to me the shot that you want to take on a deer of just behind um, just behind the shoulder, slightly less than, you know, slightly below the the midway point, like on the, uh, the vertical axis. And um, the, and you, you kept describing the sound to me that it would make like uh, punting a basketball. And I knew, I knew exactly what sound you were talking about, but I couldn't even put it, I couldn't even voice the words because the sound you were describing is the, is the thump that it makes when I pat my dog on her chest that like hollow sound one of my favorite sounds in the world like one of the few perfect sounds in existence and the thought that a deer with a body that looked markedly similar to my dog's body would make that sound when it when i was taking its life i couldn't i couldn't connect those dots so in order to um, and every, you know, and when I was looking at deer and also, you know, my mother was like preparing to go through this surgery and then recovering from the surgery. And I had all this shit playing out of my head. What, what's ironic about this whole process is I cried a million times uh, in the in the process of hunting this deer. Never once when I actually got the fucking deer. But right. the, in in order to be able to make that decision to take a doe, I had to block out so much of my mind and then just open one little part of it. The part that's like, you know, keep your hands out of the fucking triangle of death and the crossbow, the like all the things you do before you put your, you know, your right elbow down, all those things that I do without thinking, uh, oh, this deer weighs about the same as your ex-girlfriend or my, that looks an awful lot like your dog or, you know, things like that. And it was, I had to master my mind in order to put an arrow on a doe and mastering my mind is the thing that I have tried and tried and tried and failed and failed and failed to do in the last two years. And, you know, there's not a better environment when it's, you're just out there with your mind. Like when you're in a blind in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere, miles from any other human being. And it's just you and your mind. There's no better time to try to wrestle with it a little bit. Lou, I felt like I was going crazy. And what's weird is it, it was the opposite process that was happening. I wasn't losing my mind out there. I was finding my mind again. Yeah. That's what it's for. And then I shot that doe and it got away. <laughs> so you shot the doe. And it was, a, it was a much better shot than the first one uh, as far as a, a a lethal shot. Uh, it was a little far back, but not too bad. And we tracked that deer. We found a good blood trail and we tracked it. And we could still hear it as the sun was going down on us. I think the sun had actually gone down on us. Um, but we could hear it about 40 yards away. And I knew from the shot, from the trail, from the sign that I was seeing, that that deer was going to die and that we would come back in the morning and pick it up. I've done that dozens of times. That's what you do when you hunt uh, with a bow uh, in the evenings, generally speaking, you shoot at the deer, you go home, you at least have a cup of coffee or a nap, or you just sleep all night. And then you get up in the morning and go harvest the deer. And, you know, that way you don't bounce it and it won't run five or 600 yards onto somebody else's property. And there's a whole mess of phone calls and all this stuff. So I'll, I'll admit to have, to have not been a huge fan of uh, tracking like deer, 
at night either. The There was one point where you and Sam and I were tracking that deer and I got a little bit far from you and a little bit far from him and we'd heard coyotes and I had the weakest flashlight out of the three of us. And I was like, <laughs> and I pretended like I was doing shit. And what I was really doing was making sure that you guys weren't out hunting for my body. <laughs> and, the, and as soon as I got home that night, I, I Googled best flashlight and then I bought it. And then I Googled best headlight and then I bought that too. And I fucking those two things ready with my shit to go for next year. I'm not, no, the, I'm, I'm still a city boy. I'm not getting fucking lost out here in the woods with coyotes. The, That's funny. <laughs> well, I mean, and it doesn't really matter how familiar you are with a piece of woods at night with a headlamp on. It's very disorienting. I mean, you really yeah. have to know where you are. And, you know, that that particular place that we were tracking that day, I'd only been on that property maybe 10 times. Well, um, it was it, it was so steep and the it was so thorny. And then the mist from our breath uh, would come up into the light from the headlights and it would just turn into like, it would just sort of fog. So you couldn't see anything. And I was the, and I, I was, you know, whatever fucking trying to play it cool and stuff. And I was like, man, I the this sucks. <laughs> this is very, I've done too many, way too many hallucinogens to be out in the fucking woods this late at night with the, with coyote sounds and the, my breath fogging up. So I can't see, like, I know how this ends, you know, the, well, you know, I, 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 sp- I, covered a lot of ground uh, army crawling looking for blood spots you know four or five or seven feet apart from each other and um by the time that i stood up and looked around i was like wow that's gonna be fun <laughs> trying to find the, find the blind from here um you know it, again it's it's an attenuation I, i've used that word 90 times in this uh podcast but like this you know zooming in zooming out is a lot of what the that experience involves. And when you're looking for a, a drop of blood that is maybe four millimeters across in a trail that is maybe two feet across, that's in a, a parcel of woods that's 100 acres, you know, you have to like zoom in and zoom out a lot. And when I spent a lot of time zoomed in like that and then tried to zoom out and try to find my way home, it was, it's disorienting. You know, you have to kind of take a beat and remember your your skill set and, and, and get yourself out of there. But so we decided to back out. We did. We went back. And the, and the trail was a lot easier to find the next morning. Much easier to find. We had stuck a knife in a tree uh, on our last spot. And um, we walked right to it, picked up the knife, and we knew where, where we thought the deer was because we could hear it the night before. So we walked 40 yards in that direction. And yep, there's a bunch of fur everywhere and a bunch of blood and no deer. And so we started scanning around and I saw, uh, what I thought was, was your deer. I thought that I saw your deer down in this flat. Yep. And, you know, we had heard coyotes really hard that night before, very close. Um, and sometimes coyotes will get to a deer that's left overnight, but they usually just eat, you know, Parts that you don't want. Um, they, they, they go they for eat the ass out of it. They eat the ass out of it first. And, and sometimes the guts, sometimes they even do you a little favor. Um, armpits, eyes, things like that will be gone. Um, what we found, I have never seen before. And I hope to never see 
again, uh, possibly the most terrifying thing that I've ever seen in the woods. Uh, there was about a third of the hide left and then just a bloody skull and a bloody spine. End of list. It was just carnage. I can't imagine how many coyotes must have been after that deer all night long. And the, it was metal as fuck. The, also like the, the orbital bones had been chewed away. The tongue was gone. The eyes were gone. Every limb was, it was just the skull. It was, it was like a f- fucking predator. It was, it had been quartered and those quarters were gone, you know, taken away. And just there on the ground is just a spine and a skull with a little bit of blood left on it. And, and half the I, ribs, you know, half the ribs just chewed off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. It was, I mean, it really looked like out of like an 80s horror movie, like that, you know, that it had been stripped by piranhas or something like that. But it was more, I mean, they ate the fucking bones, you know, there were, you know, and that was the, I didn't feel the same way in that moment that I did when I lost Ironsides because it was, again, been through a ton of shit. I've never seen your face looked the way that it did when we came upon that deer. <laughs> like you and Sam both just, I was like, I know these guys are super seasoned and I could tell by the looks on your faces, you'd never seen anything like it. And the, yeah. it almost felt worth it to me to lose that deer to see you guys just like take your hats off and scratch your heads of like, what the fuck is this? Well, that one just ain't your fault. I mean, there's just, there's nothing you could do about that. And both Sam and I were just like, what the fuck? I've literally been in the woods since I was a little child. And I have never seen anything like that. And Sam has been doing this every bit as long as I have. And he's never seen anything like it. That picture, I don't know if you know this or not, got passed around in Athens circles. that Somebody posted to Facebook and it kind of went around. And I've had people show it to me at the bar like, hey, man, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I was there. I'm the one that found it. Like, holy shit. That's wild. It's, it's nuts. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, again, I don't know what it is with this is your first hunting experience and why every permutation of the weirdest outlier shit has to happen to you on your first uh, experience. <laughs> but here you go, buddy. Uh, your, your, your first killed deer was completely stripped by coyotes. So, you know, we don't count that one, Um, you know, and and, and hopefully that's the last time I see that, man, that I felt the, you know, and and again, it was one of those things where I had to do a lot of work in my mind to say like the, well, the, those coyotes were fucking, they had a good night. They were happy. None of that meat was wasted. Obviously that it went went right back into the system, you know, the, and, um, the and I and I also I made up my mind to uh to to absolutely nail the next shot to to make sure that I shot the deer right and that it fell and died, you know. Yeah, you just knuckle down, get your marksmanship on, make a good shot right in the right spot. So at, then after that, you guys busted me down to the fucking kiddie pool to the bunny slope. You <laughs> <laughs> have a stand that you know is frequented by does and i know that you know we i knew that you were running out of time and that you know the experience of having your deer taken by coyotes might be a uh a soul breaker you know what i mean it might just be a spirit breaking uh event and i wanted to make sure that you were 
if you're gonna take, you know, harvest venison, then you got a, a, a good clear shot at a, at a at a nice easy sit. You'd earned it. You'd been out slumming it in in my stands and, and hiking up some harsh conditions and out in some some rough stuff. And I thought we'd give you the easiest possible out here. So we put you on one of Sam's properties. Um, and it, down by and Lou, Lou, I was like, I was so grateful that Sam was offering that opportunity. Um, and also I was like the, you know, God damn it. I don't want to, uh, I don't want like dunking on the low hoop. There's nothing that feels good about it. You know, the, it's like the, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this, you know, the, but also right. I, I was like, I was ready for the fucking journey to be over. You know, I, I'd just been out there like so much, so often for so long. And then the, um, and then I don't think we can overstate how many times you hunted. I don't think that we can, it, I didn't it, do it, it was like every day for three weeks. It was a <laughs> really thing. Like, every, yeah. Every morning and every evening. It wasn't just like a little bit here or like one day here. I mean, you hunted, you know, 40 out of 42 possible sits there. Okay. You hunted yeah, a lot. It was a lot. And that's a lot. I mean, 40 sits, most hunters that are 40 years old haven't hunted 40 sits. Okay. Yeah. Like that's a lot. You got a lot of experience in, in a very compressed amount of time. And, um, you earned a, a little respite from, you know, just dogging it all that time and and the week before too so you know well and then the first time that i went out there to sit at uh i think i think i went out there two or two thirty, and sam had said oh you know the the does start to roll in around uh you know three thirty or 4 the i watched um four or five deer on that field and none of them got within shooting distance before the sun went down of course and, and that's the other thing like even in the best possible scenario, nothing is fucking guaranteed here. This is not like, you know, <laughs> it's not like hunting in a penned-in area where the deer, like, do something the same time every day and they've been grown and raised. And, you know, there are places where you can go and pay thousands of dollars to hunt mega giant deer that have been pen-raised and, and are kept in a 12-foot fence in area, which is another form of bullshit that we'll talk about at some other time. <laughs> But you know, this is this is still you're still hunting deer. We're just trying to put you in like the highest possible percentage situation. And so, yeah, you sat that first night out there, and even even in that great situation, nothing is guaranteed, and you didn't get a shot at a deer. But and, then you got to go back the next morning. And I di I wasn't even sure about going out that morning because the you know Sam had talked about seeing them there at. In, at dusk so i didn't know that there you know if there was going to be anything there in that morning but i was like i was like i gotta try so my alarm went off and i put on my fucking four pairs of pants and three sweaters and two coats and the you know and i knew that i was going to go out there and freeze again but i like i just had you know at this point i was just like i gotta i gotta keep doing and it was one of the things that i feel like i've focused on a lot in my life in the past couple of years is those small victories of like not going out and running 50 miles, but just running three miles every day for a month or whatever, you know, but what I was going for here was like a big victory. And I'd made up my mind to take the, the second place thing of like getting a doe, which is fine. You know, the, I wouldn't be able to have bragging rights or, or whatever, but then I'm sitting there I'm freezing. I finally got into using the binoculars, having watched you use them religiously, like every time that we sat. 
and I was watching um, to my far left because that's where the deer seemed to come in and there was no action there. And then I looked directly out in front of me and I saw what I thought was a fawn at the far edge of the field. And I was like, well, the, that's not the deer, but it's a deer and that's a good sign. And then it slowly started to pick its way across the field towards me. And I was like, oh, that's, that's a like two and a half year old doe. That's a, that's a shootable deer. You know, the, like, I wouldn't be embarrassed to bring that home. And then, and then I saw that it had antlers and then I just about shit my pants. (laughs) (laughs) And the, and you hold up and what's that? Just tell me, tell me what that felt like. Like when you find, when you realize that there was a lone buck making its way across that giant, giant field, possibly towards your. I mean, mostly, mostly what I felt was dread. I, I was just like, I'm going to fucking blow this again. And the, and as embarrassing as it's been to like, to shoot iron sides and then lose him and then shoot this doe and then lose that, the, if I, if I blow this, like the, you know, and, and that deer moved really, it moved towards me, but moved very slowly. And he kept putting up his head and sniffing the air. And every time he put his head up, I was like, okay, he's, his, his nostrils are going to pinch in when he sniffs hard, he's going to catch, you know, he's going to smell me and he's going to be gone. And the, and that was the first shootable buck that I had seen in the whole month of December. I, I saw, I think I saw one other buck on the side of the road when I was driving home in a fury one night, but the, but they had all, they had all become nocturnal by that point. And the, and so I was just, it was one of those things where I sort of like told my, you know, don't dare to hope. And then he kept getting closer and closer and he was sort of um, quartered away in every in every possible way, the every possible way he could give me no shot, he did. And, <laughs> and I, and I was trying to remember all the things that you told me of the, you know, when you sight the, you know, when you sight in on the deer, um, you know, five count before you, uh, before you squeeze the trigger, squeeze the trigger, don't pull it, hold, you know, hold the shot steady and then slowly squeeze the trigger so that you're, you're sort of a little surprised when it goes off. Um, right. Keep, keep your right arm down. All these mistakes that I'd made um, other times, other shots that I was like determined not to make. And, and then the deer finally, um, he turned he got, he got real close to the pile of grain that we had in, in front of us. And I think it was like the last bag of corn that they had at Walmart too, or something that like all these things just lining up to make it the most pressure filled environment possible. And then he turned broadside and had his, uh, right foreleg blocking the shot. And I was like, God damn it. And then he moved, he took that one step and I was like, there, that's the shot. Now I can, the I, I can shoot him right in the heart and I and I took the safety or no, I'd taken the safety off before and he heard that looked in my eyes, but then didn't run. And then I raised the crossbow and the scope had fogged up with my breath. So I had to wait for the wait for the fog to clear. And then I lined up the shot and then I squeezed the trigger. And the 
And I know now from having, I mean, having studied under you with this, you know, that when, uh, when you, when you put the shot in the right place, that the deer plants its front two hooves and does like a mule kick. And when it's a mortal wound, the tail is down instead of the tail being up. And this deer didn't do the fucking mule kick. And I was like, God damn it. I blew this too. It, um, it didn't do the mule kick. It just tried, it just started tried to run away, but its tail was down and it was like, it couldn't get its front legs to work. It was sort of pushing with its hind legs, but you know, struggling, having a hard time. And I was like the, Oh my God, maybe I got it. And then I I watched it run 25 yards, maybe 40 yards. And then it fell. And I, I was, you know, my heart was in my throat and the, you know, where it feels like your chest is twitching that your heart's like trying to fucking jump out of your chest. And I was like, I, I I know that I don't know what I'm talking about, but I, I think that was it. I think that was it, you know? And I immediately like looked down on my phone to see what time it was. And it was like, it was just first light. And the, and I was like, okay, 30 minutes from now, I have to, to lose said, I wait half an hour. The, and I'm like waiting and watch. And I immediately put the binoculars up to watch where the deer had fallen. And then uh, minutes later, I watched a big cloud of steam go up. And I was like, that he just died right there. I just watched all the air leave its lungs. And I waited another, Lou, I'm sorry. I waited 12 minutes. I, tr- I tried so fucking hard to wait for, I, I tried so hard. I just couldn't do it. It was like, like a little kid waiting for Christmas. And then, but the, but I was like, no, I, I, I watched that deer die. And then I came out the far side of the blind, like, you know, and I'm like sort of creeping through the rows of the corn, like looking for the arrow. And it had been so hard to find the arrows and I couldn't, and I knew where I'd shot and where the arrow should be. And then I saw the blood trail and it was, it was massive. It was a spray. And I was like, I got this deer. And then I, so I tried to slowly pick my way towards where it was, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see a fucking thing. And I was like, this, this motherfucker got up and crawled away or something, you know? And then, and I saw it, I saw it, you know, I saw the antler sticking up and I, I walked over and it was, man, I'm like, I'm so excited, worked up, like just talking about it now. And it, you know, I mean, it, it was, it was dead and I knew that I'd gotten it and I'd done it. And I walked back to the car. I, I've done a ton of speed in my life. I've done so much speed. I've never done as much speed as I did in that moment of just like the <laughs> feeling my entire body, like just shiver with pleasure. Like, Oh my God, I did it. Went back to the car. I got the sled, came out and put the deer in the sled and it was heavy. It was so heavy. And then, you know, humped it back, you know, pulled it back there, got it in the back of my little 2005 Honda element. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to, I know, I know Lou and Donna have fucking had it with me by this point and I'm going to go and drop this deer on fucking Lou's porch and go and wake him up. And and as I was driving to your place, the I saw Sam's GMC and he stopped and rolled down his window and I was like, Sam, I got it. And he was like, oh, you know, the you're going to be hunting there again, you know, uh, this evening. And I was like, no, I got it. And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I, I got a, I got a fucking buck. And he was like, no. And I was like, no, I did. And he was like, bullshit. And I was like, Sam, it's in the back. 
and the and he was like bullshit and he turned his truck off and the and i got hopped out of the car and like went around to the back and i opened the tailgate and the and sam's pretty low-key guy like in the pocket doesn't doesn't get real loud doesn't get real expressive and when i pulled that open the tailgate and he looked and he saw i got in a buck he just went like holy shit and the and like came and gave me a big hug and then said holy shit again and gave me another hug and then i was like fucking follow me like we're gonna go to lose place and uh, and i remember like pulling up and trying to get trying to get my fucking little element to go up your super steep driveway and i was like well if i if i go into the pond now like this this whole thing right. <laughs> yeah the whole whole venture is shot <laughs> And the, the yeah, and I heard um, I heard stacks start to bark, and I was like, I don't even need to call Lou or pound on the door; he's gonna wake up. And I could feel my phone ringing, and you, uh, you, you definitely sounded over it. <laughs> well, Donna woke me up, and she was like, "The hunting brigade is here," and because you had, uh, <laughs> had rolled up the driveway. And I was like, oh, okay, let's see what's going on. Like, maybe Mishka hurt himself. I don't know what happened. Here. <laughs> it's, I think what you said was, you better have a deer. Yeah, I, that's because the alternative to you waking me up at 8 o'clock in the morning was going to be something bad. So, yeah, you better have a deer. And you're like, yeah, I got a doe. And I was like, cool, I'll be right down. And so I walked down. And, uh, I mean, whether you know this or not, like I lived every one of those sits with you. <laughs> like you were like, oh my God. And I'm like, all right. And I would just think about like, man, I wonder if Mr. seen any deer. I would, you know, like I'm the reason that Sam was so happy for you is because when you're, you've got a buddy that's out hunting and, and doing it hard, like you were on this last hunt, you're really rooting for him. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a yeah. little bit of vicarious living and there's a whole lot of like just rooting for your team, you know, like, yeah, yeah. man, go get it. And um <laughs> you know, it's it's not a whole lot different than like the game winning field goal. Like, you gotta hug the kicker, man. Like, good job, buddy. And so when I walked down and I was like, I was about to I was gonna play it off nice and cool. You got your dough. I'm glad that you finally got this over with. I was gonna say something mean, whatever. And then <laughs> you opened up to the fucking truck and it's this fucking eight point buck yeah. and i was like hell yeah dude like all of the emotion that i had that first day that you shot iron sides was right back it's that same adrenaline that same like hell yeah you know yeah and and it's uh, thank you for for at least giving me that uh small amount of surprise i did that once for my dad i shot a buck um that's mounted down here in the cabin it's a really beautiful, uh, weird 12 point that has really tall brow tines. And I had shot it and he was walking up towards me. He's like, what'd you get? It's like, oh, it's a little spike. And then by the time that he got up to it, he could see how cool and how, how large the rack was on the steer. And he's like, oh my God. And just that, you know, going through that little, little emotional thing is always a nice little kick. And I yeah. was really happy that you were able to do that for me. Um, and it, it really is. It's a nice little jolt. And, and then we take the deer down out of the truck. <laughs> and I realized that I'm not field dressed it <laughs> because you didn't know how to field dress deer, which makes sense. But like you know, I thought you would call me to where the deer had fallen. We would field dress it together there. However, so there's a deer full of guts now in my driveway, <laughs> and we ended up having to drag it over to the uh, the the field across the street here, 
and uh, and field dress it um, across the street. And yeah. so, you know, we we our ritual we get cutting into the deer, and I start looking for the for the shot, you know. And I ask you to tell me a story, and you're telling me a story, and I'm like, and where did you shoot it? And I'm looking, and I cannot find. There's blood everywhere, but I cannot find the entry and exit uh, wound on on the deer. And you're like, I was aiming right for the shoulder right there. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, there's no shoulder shot And, and I was sure I shot and, it through the heart. Yeah. I mean, because you, and you said blood spray and all this. Yeah. You know, as, it went as, down, as fast went as right it down, died. Didn't, yeah. Right. Um, didn't have to track it hardly at all. And it's just, you know, it went 30, 40 yards, whatever it fell. And all that stuff sounds like a heart shot to me, too. But there is no hole in the chest cavity. <laughs> and. <laughs> You know, poking around, looking around, and I find it shot right through the middle of the neck. (laughs) 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 Middle of the neck, you got the carotid and the uh, jugular was gone, and so yeah, that deer didn't live for twenty seconds after you shot it. Yeah, Um, very ethical shot. (laughs) 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 Not where you were aiming for, is my guess. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, it's it's wild because, uh, you know, uh, talking to other people about, you know, this process of going through this with you, you know, I knew that it was so much of this is about it's about doing the right thing and it's about doing the right thing in the right way and it's about doing the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And it was super important to me to the... um, not to fucking not to shoot a deer two minutes too early or two minutes too late, not to take a shot that I wasn't a hundred percent confident of, you know, I really, I tried so hard to overcome my nerves and my excitement and just be patient and like place it in the right spot. And I blew it each time, but the, but I was determined each time to get it right. And the, it was I'm not going to lie, dude. It was kind of fucking crushing to find out that I had aimed at the biggest part of the deer and hadn't hit any of it. And it's like (laughs) shooting, shooting at the billboard and like putting out the fucking light on it, you know, the, and, um, but having had, having had time to live with it, I feel, I feel good about it because, you know, and you made a point of this, you know, too, that, um, I got the deer, right? I, I I did get the deer. That deer didn't suffer. The it was it was a good buck. The the probably the most meaningful thing that you've said to me in twenty years of friendship is when we were dressing that deer, and like three different times you looked at me and you said, "There's nothing wrong with this deer." And the and that I'll tell you, man, that that landed for me. I felt like I had done the job. You know that I, I was a good boy. You know the it's it's funny the. This is how much emotional content there is with, um, you know, with something like this and the, but I'm glad too, that I kind of fucked it up at the end because, um, you know, you and I have been threatening to record a song together at your place there. I don't know. Every time I'm out there and we never do, we're like, all right, we're this time we're going to go out in the, um, in the back, that uh, natural amphitheater, we're going to do something there. I got the, you know, I got got the recording software hooked up. I got this new guitar. We never get around to it. And the, 
And I'm at peace with that because it means I got to keep coming back because I left something undone. And yeah. in, in this process of hunting for this deer and getting this deer, the um, shooting it in a way that I killed it and killed it ethically, like I'm proud of that. And also, I got to try this again, man, because I did not get it right. <laughs> well, I think, you know, a little bit of uh, marksmanship training, you know, you run like a quarter mile and pick up the crossbow and try to shoot straight. Um, you know, do some things, get your heart rate up and get into that situation and then kind of train yourself how to how to shoot in in adverse circumstances. You're going to be great, man. The The hardest part of this is not the shot. The, the boring part is a deer walked in and I shot it. The hard part is putting yourself in that situation time and again in, in a way that increases your odds of success and to make sure that you're paying attention to all the things all the time. You know, it, being part of it isn't just like observing it. It's literally living in it. And, um, and you really did learn how to do that. And the shooting stuff, that'll come. That's practice. But the, the mental attenuation is so important and you did it and I'm super proud of it. Thanks, man. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, it really, it really put new life into me. And, and that's one of the things that's been so weird is, you know, having that experience and then like going back on tour, which is something that I know so well. And then coming back to my home here is that I feel, um, I both feel restored to who I was, um, you know, three years ago and, and also, uh, transformed in that, um, I feel, I feel so much more settled now. Like things don't really, haven't really rattled me the way that they used to. And right. I think so much of it is from, you know, the, you know, we talk about like narrowing the aperture, you know, in when you're sitting in the deer blind and that you have to focus on this one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And there's a million different thoughts available to you. And some of those are useful for what you're trying to do. And some of them aren't. And the, and you just need to, to turn those parts of your mind off and then, and, and use the thoughts that are useful to you and move forward with those. And the, and that's, yeah, that's what I've taken away from this. The, um, it's not that, um, you know, I did feel sadness when we were dressing the deer, um, because it, it's, it's amazing. I've never been that up close like that to a deer like that ever in my life. And the, and it was big and it was heavy, you know, and, uh, you know, it was like moving a body and then, um, the fur was really soft and it made me real sad. And, but mostly what I felt was gratitude, you know, uh, gratitude, um, obviously to the deer for just walking straight out of the woods and slowly picking its way across the field and then putting itself right there for me when I, you know, when I needed it, um, gratitude to you obviously for your friendship and i know that uh that i've been pretty high maintenance the last couple of years and that there's a lot been a lot of like heavy lifting uh being friends with me 
and the and you've never shied away from that. I'm really grateful to you for that. And and also, I I I mean, it's maybe it's pride, but I feel gratitude towards myself that I had I somehow found the strength or the resilience to to fuck it up and fuck it up and fuck it up and fuck it up and just keep going back and to just keep trying again and to, to make, to make this mistake one day and then make a different mistake the next day and then a different mistake the next day and keep making all these mistakes. And then finally, eventually narrow the aperture enough that even though I didn't get it perfect, I got it close enough to bring home that deer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To have, you were able to tune out what needed to be tuned out, tune in what needed to be tuned in and harvest the deer. And you know, that a deer walked in and you shot it. <laughs> That's the tweet, right? That's the tweet. <laughs> Lou, thank you so much for taking this fucking journey with me for having me out there for all the, you know, all the time that we spent out there, you know, all the, you know, trying to pump 40 years worth of hunting knowledge into my, uh, into my rabbit brain in such a, you know, uh, you know, quick span of time. And, uh, the, and man, I'm so glad that I, I didn't get the deer of a lifetime. It was very, very rewarding for me to watch you go through that process. And, uh, I'm glad that we got to do that together. Awesome. Good to talk to you, brother. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Love you, Michigan. Love you too, brother. Bye. Folks, thank you so much for listening. I know there's uh, some million podcasts out there. We appreciate you uh, you spending your time with us. The um, If you're digging the show, if you're enjoying it, if, you, if these conversations uh, move you, make you laugh, annoy you, piss you off, um, please take a minute to uh, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it helps us grow the show and it helps other people find it. Um, if you'd like to hear bonus episodes, song demos, just sort of uh, ranting off the cuff uh, conversations, all sorts of different uh, bonus material, writing advice, uh, personal blog posts and stuff like that. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Mishka Shabali. Uh, we will be having monthly episodes up there with my mom and I answering uh, questions from readers. And there's all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, thank you so much for supporting. 